All right, it is good to be with all of you here. Um, as they mentioned, my name's Dan, and I'm with the Village Church. Uh, this is, um, if I mean, first of all, I just got to say this because I'm really shallow, but I misread um, the directions for the for the facility here, so I saw it as Christmas attacks. And I was like, well, that, you know, that's like the baddest sound of day, but that's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, again, I'm letting you know how shallow I am right from the beginning, but... Uh, the nature of things, I think, uh, we meet in a traditional, old, uh, glorious-looking church building. I think the nature of the human heart is you always want to be with what you don't have. So I look at this, I think this is the coolest thing ever, being in a community center. And, and then I'm sure, uh, I'm sure this has got its pros and cons. But um, I, I don't know if you guys knew what's going on here for these three weeks, but we've got this really special deal where we're talking about the gospel and the kingdom. And um, just with what you guys are doing here with Pastor Joel with Pastor Adam Felton from Metanoia. We're just doing a three-way switch for the three weeks preaching in our own churches, but also at the other ones. And uh, aside from being able to hear different speakers, I think this is a really cool thing that we're being part of here because what, what we're trying to send the message is that the gospel, the kingdom, is so much bigger than any one church. As a church planner myself, I'm just, you know, you're going to hear a lot of ugly stuff about me. One of my evil heart things is you get so territorial. You get so focused on, man, we need to grow. Who's going where? And, and one thing God's just been giving me a nice little slap to the upside of the head is saying, y'all, it's not about you. It's not about one church. It's about something much bigger than you. We need to be united in that. So three of us are saying, hey, let's put this into action. Let, let's speak at one of those churches. Um, so I'm really excited. About I'm, I'm particularly excited just to be here with you guys. One of the downsides of being a church, well, there's no downsides of being a church. But the, maybe, maybe the one um, is that you really don't get to check out other places because you're, you're doing your own thing. So I just love this opportunity with all of you. I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. I think aside from you and Chrissy, I don't think I know any of you. So um, you, you have no idea who I am, but I am huge fans of what you guys are doing here at the Garden. It has been incredibly encouraging to hear from, from Pastor Joel just the ways God's moving here in many of your lives, but in this community, in this city. Um, so I am huge fans of what you're all doing. I know church planning is not easy, so keep pressing forward. I'm also a huge fan of uh, Joel. Um, <laughs> I, I just love the man. I'm sure you guys love him much more than I do because you have to be with him all the time. I just love the guy. I actually, he, he embodies for me the true picture, I think, of what a godly man is who serves the city. And, and I hope you appreciate that. You support him as much as possible. You put your full energy behind because I, I just love the guy. And I'm going to stop saying more because you're going to think he's paying me to say these things. And he's not, so I'll, I'll stop right there. But... Um, Again, we're doing the sermon series called The Gospel and the Kingdom, and I'm going to explain in a little bit, but if you can turn uh, to Matthew 4.23, and we're going to be looking at a couple different passages, but this is on page 860 of the Bible, if you have the ones on the seats here, but this is Matthew 4.23, and this is kind of a common verse that the three of us are all using together to, to kind of spearhead us to this idea of looking at the kingdom. And Matthew 4.23, it describes who Jesus is. He says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So as, as we look at this and see Jesus' mission, the question we want is, what is the gospel? Well, what's the kingdom? And, and to answer the question about what the kingdom is, most of us here, you've been, if you've been raised in America, we don't have a king. Um, depending on your political ideology, you think we should or you think we do. Or we, well, regardless of any of that, the idea of a king is kind of a foreign concept for most of us here. Uh, but when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about a particular dominion, a particular reign. And it's aside from um, national boundaries, it's aside from people groups, it's aside from a time, a space. It really is the movement of God working and those who are involved with it, those who are being impacted that's the kingdom of God. Wherever God is ruling and reigning, we would say that's the kingdom. So when we talk in, in the language of kingdom and then we look at the gospel, it's a question that's, well, what's the gospel? Because I would say right now, 2011, this is just 50 years ago, you could ask this question, people, oh yeah, the gospel is da, 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 da. Now you ask, whoever you ask, you'll get totally different answers what the gospel is. Um, it, it's helpful to understand kingdom language because some people would say the gospel is primarily the fact that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to this earth to take on the form of man. And he would just reverse the whole idea of what it means to live in community, what does it mean to share with one another. He just reversed it all. Some would say, that, that's the gospel. Others would say, you know what, that, that's cool, but the gospel, what it really is, is the fact that we are sinners, broken, and we needed someone to mediate on our behalf and be a substitute for us and die in our place and forgive us of sins. That's what the gospel is. Again, 
you know, fully, amen. Others, you know, well, those, those aren't bad. I'm, I'm fully, I'm, I'll dig that. But the gospel really is that as we are the people of God, man, we get to live out what's going to come. What we get to do now amongst one another, we get to really live out with each other the principles and the values and the heart of the kingdom now. And it's just a foreshadowing of what's to really come. And if you press me now and say, y'all, okay, well, you gave us some fruit. What's, which one's right? Which one's the God? I'm going to say, yes. That, that, that's my answer. Not, not that I'm wishy-washy. What we want to say is we want to affirm clearly there is one gospel, but it's expressed in different forms here. There's one true gospel, and you cannot, if you ever attach a word to the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. There is the gospel, but it's expressed in these different forms. And Pastor Joel, he's going to be talking about the upside-down values of the kingdom. That when Jesus did come, it totally reversed the way we look at ourselves, look at the world, look at uh, things from money, look at uh, power, all that thing. Jesus instituted a new way of looking at the world, and we totally affirmed that. We would also say that, um, and Pastor Adam Phil next week is going to be talking to you guys about the backward-forward aspect of the kingdom. That now, Jesus came once, he did some tremendous stuff. In some sense, he totally won, but we're waiting for it to be completed. We're waiting for that full kingdom to blast it. Whoa, we just get a little taste now, and, and we're still in a broken world, so we don't feel so, see the full completion. One day it's going to be glorious. And, and what you guys are doing here at the Garden Community, you get to live a little bit of that now. You get to show a little bit of that now. And, and I have the privilege to talk about the inside-out piece, um, just this idea of that the gospel says there's a whole new way for spiritual transformation. The gospel says how we view change it's totally different than the ways perhaps we've grown up with, the ways that we've seen. That the radical nature of the gospel, it revolutionizes the way we look at how someone becomes a different person. In many ways, it's a condemnation of religion. Because religion, it focuses on the external changes. Religion's all about, well, what, what do you look like that's different? What's changing in your life? And we look at the external things. Many of you grew up in religion. That's why you're sitting here in the garden. Because you, you actually despise it. Because it was all about, and, and you all know that guy, right? And maybe it was you. Totally pious looking outside, and you just dig a little bit. You're like, whoa, there is no heart that's producing that at all. It's all covered. It's all phony. That's religion. Religion is how do I impress that neighbor down the street who's going to my church and they're going to look down on our family if we're not all doing the nice Christian thing? Religion is I better start, stop doing these things, or at least when church people are around, because they're going to look down on me because that's religion. Religion can be, uh, look very nice. I mean, religion can look very pious. It can look, religion will probably be the deacon or the, the elder in the church, you know, because you're going to say, wow, they are living the right life, not like a schlep like me. They're really good at it. Let's make them the elder. But we see that in the gospel, God speaks in the language of a heart being transformed. We see it in the language of he does want our external behaviors. He does want our outside. He thinks that people see the change, but that's always got to result first from inside. There's got to be a heart change. There's got to be a transformation. I mean, the language you see, even in the Old Testament, of he turns a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's such a great visual imagery of what we're talking about. Because religion traditionally teaches, if you do good deeds, if you follow the moral code, if you do the right things, then you deserve to be blessed by God. If, as, long as, you, as long as you live your life right, you've got no excuses, and God better not have excuses. He better bless you, because that's the way God affirms. Um, the gospel actually says the exact opposite. The gospel says because you and I could not live the way we're supposed to live, because you and I are broken, sin sinners, failing in every way, because of that, we needed a Savior. We needed one who lived a perfect life to stand on our behalf and to die a perfect death that you and I all deserve because we couldn't carry that burden of proof. And that's why Jesus is good. That's why the gospel is called good news. And, and there's this word, fancy word that you probably, I don't know if you guys even knew, justified, you know, and, and I, I'm not big on big theological words because sometimes it's like, oh, but uh, one thing that helps me to remember is when we talk about in Christ, some of this process, some of the way to describe this change, heart change, if you're justified, uh, uh, work with, it's justified, never sinned, you know, or it's justified, fully obeyed. That's what justification in a sense is, that when Jesus, you identify yourself with him, he lived the perfect life, so the way the Father looks at you as if you had fully obeyed. Justified, fully obeyed. Justification also means the Father looks at you and justified, never sinned. It's extremely freeing. It's good news. It means you could have had the worst night. Saturday night, oh, it was bad. But if you are in Christ, the Father looks at you, and it's not that he's pleased with certain behaviors, but he looks at your heart and says, this heart has been captured by Christ. I see 
the son. I see the sacrifice when I see this person now. That's good news, guys. I don't even know if this works here. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I, I know some churches, you say that, people are like, uh, but, uh, um, but, you know, we get this kingdom part down. This is huge. Because I, I really, I really want to affirm there is huge significance in what we do. There are far too many Christians, I would say, that's all about just knowing who you are in Christ. And if you, as long as you know who you are, that's what's matter. And, and they don't do a single thing. It's just it's a waste of flesh. I mean, honestly, we are called to be people of action. We're called to follow as Christ did, to go into the world and be people who are in the forefront of making a difference. Um, but just as important, I would say, is just as much as what we do, I would say just as important as who we are. Um, perhaps I would say that who we are becoming is just as important, if not more, than what we do. Because as, as a doer myself, it's really easy to get caught up in, well, it's all about what I do. That's got to match up. True, but that's got to come from a heart that's being transformed first. Um, you know, I, I look at you guys, and I look at our church. Um, I look at other churches in the city of Baltimore that are trying to make a difference. Um, we're talking about changing the city. And, and from there, moving out, we're changing our country. It doesn't mean we change the pledge. You know, whatever. It, we're changing our country. We're changing our world. Um, that's not going to happen from people doing nice little community service things. Honestly, I mean, it, it'll make a little, nice little dentist, but it's like putting a Band-Aid on a big wound. We ultimately have to be people who are changed ourselves. You and I need to recognize the fact that I am a broken, messed up, totally separated from God type of person, but God in his mercy has shown grace to me. He's changed me. He's forgiven me. And now that I've received that, my heart has just moved and changed and broken and built back up in what it was meant to be. Now I can go forth. And I'm, just, I'm not trying to pay back God. I'm not trying to be a good do-gooder out there. I'm realizing I had no hope at all. But now in Christ, I have full hope. And I want to share that with you. I share that through my words. I share that through my actions. And I love those around me. So when we're when we're looking at these serious questions of how God changes, I'm going to take a little bit of a, a little bit of a detour here. I'm going to talk about the desert. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the desert, and um, probably not the most fun of topics with most contemporary Christian world. I would say our culture right now. Um, it, it's usually I'm not making fun of anyone when I do this. I'm really trying. It's but it's kind of like the seven steps to complete happiness in God. You know, because if your life is miserable, come in here and hear the seven steps. All you need to do is do this and follow it exactly, come for seven weeks, and then by the end, boom, product. You're going to be happy. You're going to be happy, happy, joy, joy, Christian. You'll be all good. You'll be smiling. You'll stop being that grumpy person at church that everyone kind of, what's wrong with him or her? Why do they come? They make everyone feel bad. They make everyone feel down. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like we're the whole thing. Uh, I'm not even going to go into that. Um, <laughs> Amen. I, I, li I like you. I like you. That affirms the speaker. I like Because um, the truth is, the world, but I would say especially the church at times, tells us to avoid the desert like the plague. Often it seems like ministry church is more about how can we avoid pain? What can we do to medicate it? What can we do to kind of cover it up? What can we do to get our minds off of the troubles and the problems and the pain so that we can experience the goodness of God? Uh, I'm going to throw something pretty radical out there and say, sometimes desert can be the best place you can be. And some of you are right there right now. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. You're looking for a water fountain, and so sad thing, deserts don't have water fountains. You can walk, you know, you have a mirage, you, you have different things like that. Because the desert's a dry place. No one goes to the desert for a refreshment. You might go for a day because, you know, it's cool to look at all the structures and Especially if you got a nice car, you just sit in there, AC, and then you look out and you say, wow, the desert's really beautiful. You don't want to hang out there. <laughs> it's a dry place. No one goes there to be refreshed, at least long term. It's not comfortable. It's not welcoming. Even, even like the physical matter, it's just hard and crusty and dry. You ever, have you ever gone camping and try to camp in the desert? You ache afterwards because the ground is all hard. Um, there's really a lack of noise to distract you, and I'm going to talk about the Sometimes we have so much noise in our life that just distracts us from the real crud that we're involved with. In the desert, eerily quiet. Eerily quiet. You hear, I mean, we, in the city, we get excited when we hear little crickets or something, right? We're like, ooh, I'm commuting with nature, right? <laughs> in the desert, you hear every little sound, and maybe scared, most scary, you can hear yourself. It's a scary place to be. And I would say it's a, it's a place where 
you're going to be honestly forced to confront your own heart. You're going to be honestly forced to confront your own life when you got nothing else that would distract you. So um, let's, we're going to look at Luke 4 again. Thank you for reading that earlier. But before that, let's turn up like a chapter earlier, chapter 3 of Luke 4, uh, before Luke 4 to get a little context. This is on page 913 if you have those Bibles on the seats. Uh, look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Again, this is describing Jesus before he actually goes out and does, you know, insane kind of ministry. Uh, chapter 3, verse 21, it reads, um, and I'm reading the ESV here. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, as when he was praying, the heavens were open. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And, and just anything else, before anything else, you know, if you haven't been baptized, be baptized. Because, you know, Jesus getting baptized is a cool thing, but I'm just going to stop right there. But um, it, it's this amazing picture that you got Jesus, who's been living his life, getting ready for ministry, and now it's kind of a, a, a stamp of approval time. It's time for the Father to say, well, here I present him. And, and, and Jesus is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And just this amazing, I mean, just put yourself in story. As he comes out of the water, he's standing there. You hear this voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's like the approval of the father. It's a stamp of approval. It's affirmation saying, yo, this is the one. This is the one that's doing it. I love this guy. I think you guys love him too because he, he's precious. It's a, it's a stamp. It's approval. And, and you would think from that point, well, he's got the approval of the father. He is all set. He better go out there now, start bringing in those disciples, start doing a little bit of fishing bread, you know, start going, go crazy, go, go do mystery, do healings and all that. But we see after this, something interesting happens. And, and Luke 4, um, and this is really surprising, it's pretty revealing. Luke 4, where we read earlier, let me read that again. It says, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended... He was hungry. Really fascinating stuff, right? He went from being fully affirmed by God, by the Father, and to being sent into the desert, into the wilderness. And I get really encouraged to hear that Jesus got hungry, you know, because uh, I cannot identify with much that Jesus does because he's God and I'm not, you know. So when he talks about healing and raising and loving, I'm just like, wow, you know, beyond my pay scale. I just can't identify. But when I hear that he got hungry, I'm like, yo, I'm right there. I mean, and my hunger is kind of late because it's like two hours, it's 40 days. But, you know, it's, you know we'll, we'll compare, you know, apples and oranges. But um, it, there's this idea that Jesus, he's fully God. But this is encouraging because in Romans, he's also fully human. And that's really, you can write books about this and you're still not going to understand again how that fully works out. But he's fully God, fully human. And, and this might throw some of you for a loop. And this is something I've been wrestling with recently. Um, we have this idea that Jesus never sinned and that he's fully God, which is totally true. He never sinned. But I had always assumed that meant that even when he was a little tight, like two years old, he just never had to get changed by someone because he was God. You know? And it just happened on its own. Like, you know, he's got like little God figures or something. Like he never needed a sippy cup because, you know, he's the son of God, so he's not going to spill a cup. He's, a, he's never going to trip. or he's not. Um, We can assume that though he never sinned, he made mistakes like the moral person. He experienced the pains that a real person would without sinning. And again, for us, it's hard to comprehend what that looks like because most of our pain is identified in some way with our sin or someone else's. But Jesus, we see that he fully could identify with you and me in what it meant to be a human being. And just like every human being, he also finds himself in the desert as part of his journey here. And you know, the Greek phrase that we see here um, for led by the Spirit, and uh, I forgot what it's it's translated with in your uh, version there. But this led by the Spirit, when we look at the Greek, this can actually be associated with the words driven by the Spirit. So that the idea of Jesus being sent to the desert after this whole blessing and affir affirmation from the Father, that this was God's plan to send him. He was driven by the very Spirit. That we can see this as almost part of his journey. This was a very integral part of him being on the mission that he was called to be in. That wasn't a mistake. It wasn't that he took a wrong turn. He was supposed to be in the desert. He was supposed to be fasting. He was supposed to be hungry. He was supposed to be tempted. And we read later, and if you have your finger there, in verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's a really amazing verse there, because it seems to almost be a correlation to say that 
as Jesus was filled with the spirit at the baptism. Then he was led by the spirit into the desert. And now it equals returning in the power of the spirit to go and do ministry. That it seems for Jesus, and I would say for us as well as his followers, part of that journey is meant to be found in the desert, in the wilderness, perhaps in pain. Because the desert, um, you know, as dry, dusty, as haunting, as lonely as it could be, I'm going to suggest we're going to meet God in ways that we would never meet when everything is plush and cool. That the desert reveals some things in us that we never see otherwise. The desert, it's often, at least for myself, and maybe you've experienced this, a time of great preparation. It's, it's a time of great development in who we are as people. If you want to turn with me to um, passage in the Old Testament, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 for a second here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is page 163 of, of the Bibles. Chapter 8, look, just a couple of verses, verses 2 and 3 here. Let me re- uh, read this, describing the people of Israel. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, land, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And we see God in the same way that he did with Jesus. And this number 40, it's got some, ooh, 40, right? There's some magical component to it. I mean, more than that, spiritual. Let's say spiritual. Magic will get me in trouble here. Harry um, but there's some significance here. Just as Jesus was led for these 40-day fasts, the people of Israel were led 40 years in the desert. And again, me being a stupid little kid when I would read the stories, I thought, man, that's an awful long trip. 40 years to get there? You, you look at the geography, it would actually take only about 11 days if they just went straight through and walked the whole thing. It was not that far. They basically were walking around in the circles, and then they would stop camp for a while. Okay, God, get up and walk around a little bit more. Just sit camp for 40 years. They were, yeah, the original people, because of sin, they weren't even the ones that would make it into the new land. It was a whole new generation. But it took 40 years of preparation, of searching the heart of this people as a collective. And we see that God had a purpose for why he had him there. Um, I was kind of sad not to see donuts back there. Not that I like donuts, but I always associate donuts with church. I don't know if any of you, when you grew up, there's that movie, uh, Simon Birch, I don't know, the little kid, he like asked, what did donuts have to do with church? Like, it's that kind of <laughs> identifying thing. When I was a kid, and this probably reflects my sinful heart, even from a, a little tyke, um, we had the kind of donuts, you didn't know what was on the inside, right? So the only way you would know is if you press them, because then you see the jelly or the cream kind of coming out. So people get really ticked off because they, you know, come down for fellowship time and they just see these finger part marks and all the donuts. I just wanted to know if I'm going to eat one donut or two or three. I wanted to know which which ones I'm eating there. And in the same way for us, the the truth is that when you're comfortable, when things are all great, hunky dory, nothing is nothing is really too bad in your life. Most likely, you and others will not see what you're truly. We are really good at putting on what we want people, how, to, how we want them to see us. We're really good at manipulating our situations, our behaviors, our, our surroundings. And some of you have been there, right? But when times get hard, when things are getting stressful, when your marriage, ooh, it, it's getting steamy, and it's not the good steamy, the bad steamy, right? it's, getting, it's just getting angry, and when things are going wrong with your kids, uh, work, illnesses, financial calamity. It's like that donut getting pressed. You start to see what's there. And some of us get shocked when we see those around us reacting to harsh situations. Going, whoa, you are just so nice and holy on Sundays. But man, I've never seen you when your car has a flat tire. (laughs) What's going on here? The desert has a great way of revealing who we are really on the inside, what our heart is, what we're made of. Because I'm going to say, um, if you're here at the Garden, you are part of something incredibly significant, not just in Baltimore, but in the world. I don't know if you believe it. Sometimes I think when we're part of something so directly, you see, oh, yeah, it's church. You guys are on the forefront of kingdom ministry here. You are doing amazing things. I'll be honest. I look at some of what you guys are doing, I'm like, this is great. This is in our city. I read books about stuff like this. You guys are doing some fantastic stuff. But the danger is we are all people with our flesh that can start to believe our own press release. 
we can start to, we just do a couple, and we don't even need that much. We just do one little thing that's, that's semi-decent. We're like, yo, who's the man? Yo, did you see what I did? Did you see how kind that was? Or did you see how generous I am? Well, I am just keeping this church plan afloat. Without me, what would they even do here? We, not that any of you ever think that, right? But we start to believe our own press. We can get a little bit too inflated with our own importance. And not that we don't have value in God's eyes. We have incredible value because we're made in the image of God. We can start to add a little bit too much importance, perhaps, to what we do and get carried away with ourselves. Um, and nothing will humble you like the desert. <laughs> nothing will humble you like when things go bad. And th- this has been one of the and I wish, I really wish I were the guy that could get up in front of people and say, you know what, follow me, because these are all the lessons I've learned in wisdom and good choices, and, and you should follow me because I'm that kind of leader. I'm that, I'm that dude who always has to mess up, and that's how I learn. You know, I'm that kid that always has to get spanked, and oh, that's how it goes, okay. You don't touch that, oh, okay, okay. Um, when I first got called in ministry, and this is almost, gosh, it's almost coming up, I guess, 13, 14 years ago now, um, I had this idea that I should be doing a lot of public kind of ministry. I felt I was gifted to speak in front of people. I felt that I, was, I should be leading people. But just the way that situations worked out, it didn't always happen like that. I remember one specific conference that I went to with a bunch of other pastors who I consider peers. And they were all doing very public kind of ministries, preaching and just getting the adulation of the crowd. Whoa, that is like revival words right there. It's great. And right when I got to, I was ready to jump in. I was like, yo, give me the word. Give me, let me do what I need to do. I want to minister to people. Say, you know, the best thing you can do for us, here's the van key. You're going to be driving people around this place. You're going to shuttle people around. I was like, seriously? <laughs> Yo, I could have stayed home and, you know, drove in my car. I don't need to do that. And for four days, I just got snot-nosed college kids jumping into this van, driving them around the whole time. Hey, thanks, dude. And just, you know, just... And part of me is thinking, I am just... This is way too low what I should don't they know how gifted I am? Don't they know how skilled I am? Don't they know how I've been empowered by the kids? You know, all, all this stuff going through my head. And, and looking back on it now, I reckon that that was one of the best things that could ever happen to me. Because knowing my character, if I achieve too much success early on like that, I have a proud, arrogant heart. Ask anyone that knows me for two months. I have a proud, arrogant, huge ego, and I can carried away with myself. One of the best things for me to experience was a humbling from God saying, yo, you are not all that. Apart from me, you can't even drive a van. You'll be crashing the poles. Be thankful for grace that allows you to do that. And, and I see that as a tremendous blessing because I have character issues that I need to get flushed out and I still need to get flushed out. And when I see myself going through the desert, I see what God is trying to do in me because it's trying to continue to expose areas of my life that are ugly and not pleasing and not good. Because the desert, along with humbling us, it also teaches us how to praise God when things are not going well. It exposes just ugly things. Because the truth is, um, the Israelites, when we look at this passage in Deuteronomy, they're going to be entering a land where everything is going to be great. You know, this is like Wegman's description of the fruit. Like, the fruit are going to be like this, huge, and you're going to love it. And compared to super fresh, go to Wegman's where, and it's, it's, it's like this amazing picture of what it's going to be. And we would think, all right, when things are going well, then they'll really praise God. You, you know your heart. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I'm really impressed with all of you. I know you are. You know, sinners like me. We don't praise when things go well. If anything, we tend to forget God when things go well. We just get sad. Well, life is good. I'm, I'm enjoying this right now. We, we don't, our hearts are not really made to praise God when things are always going well. What God is saying is here, learn to praise, learn to give thanks when you don't necessarily have all the reasons man would tell you to give thanks. Learn to praise me. Learn to thank me for manna when really all you desire is, and I'm going to be uh, equal that, when all you desire is a really good falafel. We have a lot of vegetarians at church, so I've been trying to not do steak illustrations anymore, right? But when you really, all you want is a good falafel. You know? Learn to praise God for, for manna. <laughs> you know, learn to praise him for, for entering this beautiful, good land even when you're still a nomad and when you're homeless. Because when you can learn to praise God when you're still homeless, boy, when you get that new house, that new land, then you'll truly be able to praise him because it's the heart. It's not just based on what you get. Because if you learn the secrets of being able to praise God, worship and thank him when life is hard, that's what allows you to praise God when life is good as well. 
Because it's hard to praise God when life is hard. It, it really is difficult. And I would say in some ways, our response to our hearts in the times of the desert, it's a really good way to measure our growth as a disciple of Jesus. And again, I'm not putting religious barometers, but it is good to have some things to say, well, am I growing in my faith? Am I growing? One of the best ways to see this is because praising God is a choice. You can't choose to praise God. Anyone can praise God when things are going well. Anyone can give thanks when things are going well, but only disciples worship when it still hurts. Be a disciple is to be insane. I don't know if you guys, oh, you're at the garden community. You're insane, right? In a good way. To be a disciple is it's this crazy road where you're saying, you know what? The world says go this way. I'm going to go that way. The world says chase after that. Well, I'm going to go that way. A disciple is someone who will praise God even when it hurts. It's a good way to ask your heart. Do I find myself only praising when things are, are good, only thankful? Or even when it's not that great, I see that I have God. I see that I have God. Because the desert, it is incredibly good about revealing what's deep in our core. And we're seeing all these different areas, right? Humility, thanks. It's really good about revealing what's in our core. Because the truth is, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, it's really easy to hide who you is. Ask my wife. Um, default position in my house, I'm in front of my laptop watching something, listening to something. Cap, you know, just captured with media. Because I'll be very honest, sometimes when things are too quiet, I'm forced to look at my own life. In our generation, we—it's you, you can find noise everywhere that can just distract you from what your real life situation is. And I'm not one of those, oh, anything that you plug in is an abomination before God. You must unplug so you can, you know, I'm not that guy. I, I, I think it's great, but we have to be careful that we're not letting those things mask us from really having God search our hearts. You see that. Because in the desert, in the quiet, what's often revealed is where we look to for significance. In the desert, you're going to find yourself, where do I turn to when times are hard? Where do I look to when I'm feeling down? What do I find myself um, really giving my attention to? Where do I find my happiness, my satisfaction? I mean, we want to use biblical language, we would call it idolatry. In the desert, through the harshness, the dryness of the desert, what it reveals is what we truly worship, what we bow down to, what makes us tick, what really moves us at our core. Because often the product of the desert is that those things have been threatened. A lot of times the reason we feel in the desert is because maybe we've lost a job and we really base our significance on our work, how much we produce, or we're having relational difficulty with someone, and that's our desert. Or perhaps there is an illness in our family that's the time of desert. And, and for us, security, all these things. In the desert, it will expose all of those things. It will bring them out for you to see. Or me, maybe this might even be harder in the desert. You might be there because you have done exactly what you're supposed to in life. You have achieved what you're supposed to. You have gotten every degree you set out to do. You have, you're making the money that they always told you in school you would be able to make from your job. You have got the status. People look at you. They admire you from afar. You've got everything that people would say would make someone happy. And the desert is you've got all that and you still see the emptiness in your life. You have done exactly what they told you to do. You've been a good boy, a good girl. You've worked hard. And what you see is you've got all these toys around, but your heart still feels that emptiness, that yearning. That long in the desert, it's a place of healing. Again, I think it's a good place. It's a place of healing. But perhaps even before we get to that place of healing, the desert needs to be a place where we see that we're sick. The desert needs to be a place where we see that we are not that well. Maybe we're not doing as well as we thought. And by sick, what I mean is the pain that comes with looking to, um, to anything other than God the satisfaction that can only come from knowing him. That's what I would call being sick. If you can turn with, oh, actually, you know, I'll just read it for us. This is from Jeremiah 2.13. Um, just deep voice, verse that just probed my heart. Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's just an incredibly vivid image that he's basically saying, evil of my people, their brokenness is that I am full of living water. I want to flood them. I just want to just give them everything. I want them to be fully satisfied with me. 
But all they're doing is making their own vessels that are broken and that can't hold water. And it keeps getting poured in, but it keeps leaking out. And they wonder why they're so frustrated. And I see that in myself. I'm constantly looking to other things to provide me what I think would make me happy. When true satisfaction and joy, even in hard times, would be found in God. And, and we would say that's the human condition of sin. Sin, it's often described as bad things you do or bad things you say or some things you think. And, you know, I think that might be all true. But perhaps the ultimate core of all sin is that we've taken ourselves and we've substituted ourselves for God. Where God was meant to be worshipped, we've taken ourselves, we've taken our idols, and we've put the creation and worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Maybe that, and I would say that's probably the core element of all sin if you boil it down. We are worshipping the creation rather than the creator. So in the desert, when you have all your props taken away, in the desert, when you have all your idols pulled away from you, you come face to face with what you're looking to satisfy you. Because everything is pulled away from me in that desert time. And, and you're looking to which broken cisterns am I continually trying to fill? Which broken vessels am I trying to hold a hand to? Or maybe, you know, there's a little leak, but I'm still trying to hold it. I'm still trying to find my satisfaction. I'm still trying to fill it. What are we looking to to be filled when we can only truly be filled by God? C.S. Lewis, some of you might have read him. Just in I have to keep quoting him because I can't think of wise things like this. But he, he says this incredible thing here. He says, if I find my, in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. C.S., you are. Let me read that again. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only, only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Maybe it's not such coincidence that we keep chasing after all these things that the world promises will make us. As long as you get that job, I know you're unhappy, but once you get that plum job, I, I know you're miserable. Once you find that right guy or right girl, I, you know, I know you're, you're just feeling so lonely. As long as, long as once you have a kid, not, I'll be very honest, kids do not add peace to your life. Maybe <laughs> you just run into the hurricane, right? Um, but as long as I get these things, perhaps it's pointing us not that we haven't found that yet, but maybe we weren't created to look for our significance in those different things. I mean, one of the big conversations right now, some of you might be in tune with this, is whole discussions of heaven and hell, and I'm not even going to jump into it. I'll leave it there, but one thing I will say, um, it's a whole other topic for another message. One thing I will say, um, there's one mistake if we say that hell is on the earth. If we say the earth is hell, that's one mistake. Because when we look at the Bible, there is a hell, and it's not earth, the other mistake is that there is a heaven, and it's also not this earth. I don't mean that one day we're not going to see the whole world uh, remade, renewed, and everything, and we are, you know, it talks about new heavens and new earth, but what we have right now, this, the, the sad thing I see is when we try to make this heaven, when we try to make what we have here the ultimate satisfaction of our hearts, we will never be satisfied. Because it's not meant to be that. Because you and I, we have natural inclinations to make this our home. You and I have natural inclinations to not just remind ourselves that we're just camping here for a little bit, but we set the roots. We're like, this is where I'm going to find my significance. When we do that, we will always be in a constant state of aggravation, anger, frustration, rust. And the thing is, in the times of desert, um, those very cliche ideas that we throw around in Christian circles start to take on some reality. Because we're really good. I mean, bumper stickers, you know, bumper sticker people go out of business without Christians, right? Because, you know, it's just so many great slogans. So, you know, God loves you. Smile. God loves you. Or, you know, he will never leave you. I mean, I love it. It's, it's biblical. I, I think it's great. Um, his grace is enough. It makes a great song, right? Um, thing is, you can say those things over and over until you're blue in the face. You're like, oh, yeah, God's love is never forsake me or leave me or his sufficient grace. Uh, you know, we could say these things. But when you experience God in the desert, it starts to take on some meaning. When you have, feel like you have failed in every single thing that you've ever tried to do, and you've poured your heart into something, whether it's a relationship, or a job, or an entrepreneurial decision, or you know, a personal lifestyle choice, or, or weight, or whatever it might be, when you poured yourself into that and feel like a total failure, and at that bottom point, you still hear God saying, I still love you. It takes on a whole different meaning. 
when you feel totally unworthy. You know you have screwed up. You know you have lived a life that is just an abomination. You know, and there's certain things that we wouldn't call abomination. You know you have lived a life that even you can say, oh, this must be getting God mad. Even when you've done that, and yet you think of the fact that God says, I forgive you. I will never leave those who are my children. In means forgiveness. In means grace. As far as the east is from the west, there are casters. It takes on a whole different meaning when you're at the pit of the desert. When you feel like a total failure or a total fraud. Some of us, we've just played games our whole life. We've got the mask on. But if you take some time in the desert, you think, man, I am just a fraud. If people even in my church got to know me a little bit, what the heck would they say if they really got to know what goes on in my heart? What goes on in my mind? That no one else is around. In the moments of that, when you hear things like, God knows exactly who you are, and yet he loves you because of Christ, it takes on a whole different sense. In the desert, your whole conception of who God is will change because you know that he sees you when you have nothing to brag on, when you have nothing to stand on, when you have nothing to say, oh God, look how pretty this is, when you have nothing that you can base a claim of worthy than son, and all you're doing is sitting there naked hands and say, sky saying, I have nothing. At those moments when you hear God saying, but you are my child. I am so pleased with you because of Christ. I, I just love you to death. I want you to know that. Stop filling yourself on things that are leaking and, and meaningless and, and be satisfied me. When you experience that, there's a whole different depth of who God is in your life. And you know, we, uh, I think our family's been experiencing this recently. I think part of the reason why talking about the desert is so meaningful for me is, again, I tend to learn in just hard situations. Right? So I, I wish I was a smarter guy, guys like Pastor Joel, who could learn from wisdom and from reading books and I need to read more. I have to learn from hard knocks, right? Um, but we, um, and you know, I got my wife's permission to share this, but our daughter, and you might have seen the cute little girl running around here, two and a half year old. We love her. Deborah, she's great. Um, recently, you know, she's been a little slow in developing her speech. And we just thought that's kind of, you know, normally everyone says, you know, you got to wait a little while. She had two and a half. It was just at the point where you have to start to question, because that's when everyone says, oh, yeah. Everyone's always saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Oh, two and a half. Okay, what's going on now? we realized that our little girl, if anything, her speech was starting to regress a little bit. She could barely put words together. And I remember the night that it happened. I remember my wife kind of bringing up, and it was a hard day as is, because she had been looking. Internet, beautiful tool, sometimes worst devil in the world, because you can read all the worst case scenarios on the internet. And she had found a site that described a list of this one particular disorder, and it sounded to the T like our daughter. And I remember just feeling totally helpless. We're both weeping, face to the ground. I think about a little girl. Like every possible scenario starts to come in. You know, is she going to even be able to be in normal school? Is she going to be picked on? You know, is she going to be able to talk? I mean, can she sing? You know, both of us we love singing. Is she going to even be able to sing? Is she, like all these different things? We just our hearts just start breaking. And you know, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But what what we realized, and I guess particularly for me, you know, I speak for myself. I needed that. I needed that. And I'm not diminishing, diminishing any pain my daughter is going through at all. But for me, I have the, I have the real propensity to get wrapped up in what I do. I, get the, I have a real, real inclination to just think that I'm the center of my world and that my work is so important and everything else needs to revolve around that. And what this caused me to do, again, loving slap from God, say, yo, you got a family to take care of. Your wife is hurting. You have been ignoring things that she's going through because of your selfish attitude about yourself. You need to repent of this. You've got a little daughter that needs your attention and love. And, and, and it, was, it was great because I realized I, I have been kind of focused on myself. And sometimes being in the desert, it just gets your priorities in order. It forces you to start asking, well, you know, I put so much stock in these little, little castles that I can build in the sand. But what are the things that are going to last eventually? What are the things me worth putting my time into and my energy and my prayers? And, and even the hopes and dreams I have for my daughter, you realize, as, as noble as it sounds, and I think it's great, we should have hopes for our kids, but I put way too much stock in how well my kid is going to do and what that's going to reflect on me. And being very honest, one of my concerns is, you know, if my kid is not up to par, what are people going to think about me? I'm just, you guys, I'm, I'm an evil sinner. You guys can know me, right? That was one of my concerns. How is this going to make me look? And it roots all of that out. It roots all of that out of my life. To say, your daughter is not there for you to have a little mantelpiece. Your daughter is there for you to love and to serve. And she, did, she 
becomes the best that she should be in God, and that, that's all you can do. So the desert is a time of pain. <laughs> it is just so difficult. It's so hard. But I'll be brutally honest, I have not felt as close to God as I have during some of these moments. Because it forces me to be humbled when I don't want to be. It forces me to be dependent, because I'm pretty self-sufficient, kind of, at least I pretend to be. It forces me to say, you know, I, I cannot control these things. This is out of my hands. It forces me to say, God, without you, we are hopeless. God, without you, what can we do? We can be nice little religious people walking around doing nice religious things, but if our hearts are not being changed in you, we are totally, utterly helpless here. We need you to move in our lives. Because then, in a, in a happy, happy, joy, joy world of Christianity, we're often taught to avoid pain. Often it seems like the goal is to try to make your life as happy as you can so you don't have to think about it. And I'm not promoting sadomasochism. I'm not a dude that says, yo, can you beat me some more? You know, I'm, I'm just feeling a little too happy. That's not me. Right? I like to be comfortable. I, I like things. Pain is not fun, but I also say pain can be a friend. Pain can be a friend. Um, it's a God-given way of telling us perhaps something is wrong in our lives. And I, I, I'm careful about talking this language because it can easily go into, well, God is you know, just out there to get everyone. Boom, boom. He's a loving father. But as a loving father, he will often allow pain to be used. Uh, my father just recently had a heart attack last fall. And it was a pretty minor heart attack, but it's a minor heart attack. You know, how do you put those things together? Um, and and my, my dad, he's, um, you know, he used, he's one of his kiddies from North Korea. He was raised as a you know, refugee. So he's hardcore. He just does not go to the doctor. So basically, for like six hours, he felt a little pain. He just took a nap. He's thinking, oh, I just need to sleep. Maybe some of you can identify yourself. Um, but he was just feeling pain. Finally got up, my, and my mom was like, yo, you need to go to the doctor. I said, yeah, you need to come. You're having a heart attack right now. Um, without that pain, we're so glad he had that. Because if it just hit right away with no pain, no warning, he'd be dead. Sometimes the best thing we can do is have us a little pain to get our attention to say, yo, you need help here. You need some help here. And I would say maybe the desert is like that for some of us in this room. What's your pain telling you? Because we have to recognize when we talk about inside-out transformation, the pain of the desert, it has a whole other significance for us here. More than just making you focus on your desert, my goal, hopefully, is not for you to just be stronger and say, okay, what can you learn from the desert? But ultimately, what does this tell you about Jesus? How does this point you to Christ? Because when we look at Christ, he started out going into the wilderness, driven by the Spirit. But his whole life, we could describe as a desert experience. Mocked, chastised, called a, called a, um, someone who hangs out with drunks and gluttons, just blasphemed, slandered. Um, and then eventually those words took on physical form, where he was arrested in a sham of a trial. And, and called names and brutally beaten and, and scarred and whipped and crown of thorns and everything you can imagine, the horrific stuff. That, that was his death. And it started and it culminated as this perfectly innocent, never have done a single thing wrong, still fully God, but also fully man, was called a criminal and hung up on this tree to die for you and I. And we would say that is Christ deserted that when you are going through desert times, my hope for you is that you just don't wallow there, but rather, what does it say to you about how my life is being moved and transformed? How does it point me to Christ? How does it point me to the idea that because of his amazing love, because of the fact that he would put himself willingly in that desert, that he would make himself scarred so that I don't have to. Some of our deserts feel really deep, but the truth is, it's not as bad as it could be. Because ultimately, as bad as your surroundings are, you still have Christ. Because he put himself in our place, in our desert, and took that upon himself. So what I, what I want to say to you, if you're a Christian, um, when you're going through your desert time, and maybe it's now, maybe it's not, maybe it's in the past, but I'm going to guarantee it'll be in the future, don't try to automatically medicate that pain. And by medicate, you know, whatever form that takes. It can be, you know, actual medication, or it can be any substance, or it can be work or it can be entertainment, or it could be people. Um, don't automatically try to medicate, but rather ask yourself, how is God trying to speak to you in those situations? What might, in God's grace, he be trying to say? And this, the only way we can say this with any confidence is because of the gospel. The only way we can say God might even be trying to use some of these things to speak to you is because we know that God fully loves us already. What might he be trying to say to you? And, and this, this might scare. Some of you in this room 
uh, he might be in the desert precisely because he chose the Father Christ. Don't go running now and get up and leave and say, all right, no one told me that part. Because um, all the books, they tell you, you know, your life is private. Follow Jesus and everything will suffer you. That's not the Christianity of the Bible. If anything, it says things might actually get harder. I, I love people in our church because they're so honest. One person was giving testimony saying, you know what? Because of the fact that I follow Christ, I've become more sad because my eyes have actually been opened to the hurt around me. Before, I could give a rip. But now my eyes have been opened and it's painful. I think that's a problem for us all. Some of you, because you follow Jesus, you have had family members shun you. You've had people call, think you're a wacko. Because you've chosen to follow Jesus, your life is not necessarily easier. If anything, you're struggling probably a little bit more financially because you're choosing to be generous with other people, with the church. You might not have as much free time as you would like. You might not be as comfortable as you'd like. You might have had, made choices that you're not going to engage in certain behaviors with your sexuality. And because of that, you've had people shun you and say, sorry, because you want to honor God. And that might be your desert. Some of us, because we choose to follow God, we will be in desert, and it's, it's not always a bad thing. It might hurt. But I want to say to you, the full love of God loves you fully. He's trying to speak to you. Don't just meditate. If you would say that you're not a Christian, you're asking questions, um, you know, we're incredibly glad that you're here. We want to ask you to consider this Jesus who willingly put himself in the desert for the sake of restoring your being. He didn't have to. But that's the way that our hearts are changed. He gives himself up for us. And if you've never experienced that for yourself, more than becoming religious, my goal, and I know that won't happen here before because you guys, you've got it down, right? That you would never become indoctrinated into just becoming more religious. That you would understand the fact that because you're not religious, because you're actually kind of screwed up, that's why grace is so good. That's why Jesus takes your place. You would worship him. You would trust him. You would say, God, I am broken. I am in the desert. I got no hope like some of these people here. I'm totally on my own. I need you. If that's you, you know, maybe talk with a friend or just you can talk to me, talk to someone. Say, you know what? I want to find out more what about what it means to be walking in the desert, but no, I'm not alone. can you close your eyes with me and we're gonna see where brothers can come up lead us in a few songs. We're gonna have a time of communion as well. But um, as we do that, as we get ready for that, just um, ask yourself, you know, are you going through desert times? Is there something, or maybe it's been in the past, or maybe you're still struggling with that. Um, again, ask yourself, what might God be trying to speak to me in the midst of this? Don't just try to automatically allevi alleviate the pain, though it's, it's not helpful. Maybe it doesn't feel good. It's probably never going to feel good to be in the desert, but it could be one of the best things for your relationship with God. So just ask him to do that in your life, in your heart. Take a moment, and we're going to start singing.